Good morning, Katusa First. It's a joy to be with you today. I was in my office uh, trying to figure out what to preach this morning. It's a joke. Uh, I was in my office going over my notes, and uh, I got a message from my Mormon friend. And he said, hey, I got to teach the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Do you have any suggestions? And I said, yes, teach the part where it says that the meek will inherit the earth. Because for us as Christians, the, uh, the high point or the destiny, the goal of our Christian walk is a part of what we call here the great reversal. We started in a garden, we end in the garden, right? Christ is leading us home. This is our exodus and we're on our way to the promised land. And for a Mormon, the goal is not to be with God and at peace with others. For them, is to be the God of their own planet, right? So when he was asking for suggestions, I basically gave him something that contradicts his own teaching. And we had a joke about it because he kind of knew that that was going to be something I would say to him. But we have a, a longstanding friendship. And he said, uh, well, what are you teaching on? I said, well, we just started working our way through the book of Acts. And he says, how long is that going to take you? I said, it could last up to two years. <laughs> we don't know. We're just going to go with it. And when it's over, it's over. And he goes, oh, man, that's a long time. He goes, that's going to go on so long, people will say, we go to the church of Acts. And I say, isn't that the prayer? Isn't that the dream that we would be an Acts second chapter church? Now, some of you are going, well, why would that be our dream? Well, we'll get into that in a couple of weeks. But today, uh, I want to start off talking about why the beginning of Acts is so important and so monumental that this shift happened here where we went from Judaism to Christianity, right? Uh, there was an interview recently with Paul Rudd, who is the star of the Ant-Man movies. Uh, I knew the new Ant-Man movie just came out, so he's doing the round of interviews, and they were asking him about his uh, background. He says, well, I'm Jewish, and they said, are you practicing he said, no, I perfected it. And then the interviewer said, I thought Jesus did that. And they laughed and said, yes, you're right. He's the best of us. And that is true. Christianity ended Judaism. Not the bloodline, but the religion. Because Christianity is the fulfillment of the hope that was Judaism. All of Judaism it was waiting and looking forward to the Messiah, and then the Messiah showed up, and people missed it. I don't know if you're aware, there's been a huge revival going on at Asbury University for over a week now, and I've been interested at the criticism. I've watched tons of it. I, in fact, I had a friend that was just there. I met with him on Friday. We talked about it. And because I deal so much with uh, false teachers and cults and stuff like that kind of on the sides, that's a fun hobby, as people do, right? Um, I see a lot of criticism about it from Christians going, oh, it's just one of those charismatic things, and it's not real, and we don't like that they're doing this, 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 and this, and this. And I'm a critical person, right? Like, I'm critical of things. And I believe very little of what people tell me until I investigate myself. But as I looked into it, I go, 
everything I see here thus far looks to be good. The scripture is being read. The gospel is being declared. People are being prayed for. Repentance is happening. Uh, hymns towards God is being sung. It's not about the show. In fact, there have been uh, very well-known worship leaders who said, hey, we would love to come and lead worship. And they say, no, that's okay. There are false teachers who have shown up and uh, said, we would love to help pray with people. And the people, the head of this uh, university said, no, you can go ahead and go home. So they're not making it about how can we be famous. Their goal is they want to make Jesus famous. And so I, I applaud it, but um, it makes me wonder if the same spirit that was in Judaism that loved the religion but missed the Messiah is still present in churches today. That we can show up on Sundays, we love Jesus, we sing songs, but if he showed up, we wouldn't have a clue who he was because he didn't fit our preconceived notions of what we think he should be like. Another, because, because this is what I do during the week, I was listening to a preacher, um, I, and I use that word lightly, his whole sermon was about how God hates beards, and uh, that you shouldn't have a beard because it was ungodly. Now, he was bald, and I think that's what was the motivation for his sermon because he had nothing here and nothing there. I think he just hated hair. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that says anything is wrong with beards. Jesus had a beard. The disciples had a beard. All of the prophets most likely had a beard, so there's nothing wrong with it. I just can't grow one, so I'm just envious. But it's just weird how people can have the same book, show up, sing the same songs that we sing. But then when Jesus shows up, we miss it. Because oftentimes we love the idea of God more than God himself. The um, fulfillment of Judaism that happens in Acts second chapter is what we call the new covenant. Now there's about five covenants in the Bible and the Old Testament is where you're going to get most of them. Noah is one of the first covenants. And what is the covenant that God makes with Noah? Well, the rainbow is a symbol of that covenant, that he would never destroy the earth by flood again. And then you have the covenant that God makes with Abraham. He says, from you I will make a great nation, which becomes the nation of Israel. And then Moses. God makes a covenant with Moses. The Ten Commandments, if you will be my people, I will be your God, and I will guide you and lead you and protect you, and I will take you to the promised land. Then we have the covenant of David, which is through your line, the Messiah will come. So each of these is a promise of God, and they build upon each other throughout the Bible, one on top of another, and in every single one, God is 100% perfectly faithful, regardless of the faithfulness of the people that made the other side of the agreement. So a covenant is like a contract. It's a promise that you share the common goal, and together we will work towards that. But when you make a contract with somebody, oftentimes there are stipulations, if you ever like uh, the terms and conditions on your phone, right? iPhone says, hey, there's new, accept our terms and conditions. And you hit accept and you never read it. You have no idea what's in there. And they could be saying, right, like, we get your house, right? And you're like, okay, that's fine. I just 
I just want to play Candy Crush. Just let me have that. You can have whatever. But covenant with God is not like a contract where there are stipulations that if, hey, if you are unfaithful, then I am no longer going to be your God. In fact, with Abraham, God makes the covenant with himself. So he's both parties. And this is the arrival of the new covenant, and we get hints of it in the Old Testament. So what happens in Acts 2 isn't a random act. That's kind of what I'm wanting you to understand. It has been prophesied about in the Old Testament. I'm going to read you some of those. So the main one that is the New Covenant verse comes from Jeremiah 31. You don't have to turn there. You can stay in Acts unless you just want to read along. You're welcome to. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So for Moses, they had the law written on the tablets of stone. But for us, the Holy Spirit lives and resides within us, and the, whole, like the law is written on our hearts. It's that moral compass that resides within you when you become a believer. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, and please for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So another prophecy about this new covenant we find in Zechariah is Jesus or God saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit on the people. Now, if you are an Old Testament Jew, this was new. Because the Holy Spirit didn't reside upon all believers of Yahweh in the nation of Israel, on God, right? It was reserved for kings, prophets, and priests. They were the only ones that ever had the Holy Spirit, not commoners and lay people. So you can imagine that the same Spirit that led King David, or Solomon, or Moses, or Noah... That same closeness that they had with God was going to be accessible to everybody. You can imagine, they would kind of want that, right? Like imagine if you grew up Catholic and you had been told that the Pope, the Pope was closer to God than anybody else. And someone said, someday you will be as close to God as the Pope. Now guess what? Here's news for you. You, many of you, don't get mad at me. You're probably closer to God than the Pope. I'm not saying anything about the Pope's salvation but by his fruits we'll know right and so you have the holy spirit living and residing within you you are as close to god as any prophet from the old testament and notice that he says this when they look on me on whom they have pierced they shall mourn for him do you know this is written six thousand years before jesus is talking about the piercing 
of his hands and feet 6,000 years before that even happened. I find that fascinating. One more from the Old Testament, and then we'll hop into Acts 2nd chapter. Joel 2.28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Okay, so all of this is leading up to what is happening in Acts 2nd chapter. What is going on in Acts the 2nd chapter? If you separate it from the rest of the Bible, it seems like some weird, crazy, there's tongues and fire and rushing wind. And even, uh, turn to, go ahead and turn to Acts 2nd chapter, and let's just start reading at verse 14. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. If you got it, would you say, I got it? All right. Let's read together. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Time out. So why is he having to say they're not drunk? Well, that was one of the reactions of the people who heard what was going on when we talked about last week. Where all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls and people begin to speak in tongues. But these tongues were other languages that most people understood. If you were from uh, a na another nation, you heard the gospel in your own language. Now, if you didn't know that language, you might think they're drunk. If you had never heard German before, and somebody walked up to you and started speaking German, right? like, like, oh man, they're, maybe they've been drinking, I don't know. That joke was funnier in my head than you reacted, so. I should have done Hungarian, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what he does is he is using scripture to say they're not drunk. This is what we are waiting for. He says, remember what the prophet Joel said. It says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is the very first part of the very first gospel sermon, and it's already a little confusing, right? Because he's trying to use Joel to say, this is why they're doing that. And he quotes a prophecy, but the second part of that prophecy seems out of place. Because do we have an Acts that the, the, the women and the children and all these people, they're, they're prophesying, they're declaring truths about God. People think prophecy means they're telling the future. Very, very, very rarely does that mean what it actually means. It's meaning just they're speaking the authoritative words of God to other people. You could say, if I was up here reading word for word the word of God, I am speaking prophetically. I am saying, here is what God says, 
right? And so we have that part happening, but it takes a weird turn, doesn't it? Now we go to, like, the moon's bleeding or something, right? Like, there's all this weird language that happens. It says there are going to be wonders above and signs on the earth below. This is verse 19. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. What, what do we have going on there? It took a weird turn real fast. So let me help you understand because the goal is always for you to be able to read your Bible better on your own instead of just waiting to show up to church on Sunday and have somebody explain it to you. There's a couple of tips I would give when you're reading something like this and you're going, I'm confused. Look at the beginning part of it and the last part of it. So it says, uh, the very beginning of what Joel is saying, in the last days shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Okay, but what's the point of all of that? Well, verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who comes upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you say, what is the point of the prophecy? It's declaring that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the main point. But we get sidetracked by some of the language that is just weird to us because we don't talk that way. But let me help you understand even the weird part, okay? So there is a theme that goes all throughout Scripture that you need to understand. It will help you to understand Scripture much better. It's the already but not yet. Okay? The already but not yet. This is all throughout your Bible. Are you holy? If you're a Christian, are you holy? The blood of Christ has made you holy. But are you holy? Holy means perfect, without flaw. None of you are without flaw, so you are holy. You've been made holy by the blood of Christ, but you haven't fully reached that holiness yet. That, this is what a perfect Christian looks like, right? That, that's, that's when we reach our perfection. Now, we grow in our maturity, the Bible fancy word for that is sanctification. You will grow in that. Um, the Bible says that uh, you're a saint if you're a believer. Well, do you act like a saint? Sometimes, sometimes not. So how is it that I could be holy at one point? Uh, one of the ways we say to communicate this is you have the position of holiness from God's vantage point, but you don't have the practice of holiness yet. That, that's your sanctification, you're working it out. So you have the position, but you don't fully live it out perfectly yet. So your holiness is one of those things that is already, but not yet. Does that make sense? We tracking so far? Okay, so in this part right here is the already, but not yet. So the prophet Joel has two different things in his mind. He has the beginning of the new covenant and the return of Christ. Now, is it literal language? You probably can't see my Bible from where you're sitting, but maybe your Bible has the same thing. It, it, does your Bible have this section from Joel arranged in a poetic structure? Raise your hand if it does. Okay, most of your Bibles will. Some Bibles won't. And that, it helps me to know when I'm reading poetry and when I'm not. 
So this is traditional Hebrew prose. There's a couple of views. A, this language is only figurative. It doesn't really mean the moon is, like, there's a lot of uh, people who take, like, when we have a blood moon, right? They're like, that's a sign from God. I don't know, right? There's people who've written books on that and say, we know when the end time is going to be because Jesus returned when there's a blood moon. I think you're taking poetry too far. I think you're taking a poem too far. And also, this is what we would call apocalyptic language. And we use similar language. What if I was to tell you, I was like, guys, I've got some earth-shattering news for you. Or, hey, I just read something, it's groundbreaking. Do you see that kind of language? Is it literally earth-shattering? Let's hope not. Is my news groundbreaking? Only if it's about a shovel. That's a stupid joke. I just, I just thought of that. You like it? Yeah. Uh, no. No, it's not. It's not. It's not groundbreaking. And so we can read this, and we don't have to take the literal sense. We can say, okay, what he's talking about is the beginning of the new covenant and the arrival of Jesus. So that's how he starts off the first gospel sermon. Now, let's look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him and your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite, uh, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held. And then he's going to go into a, another Old Testament verse. We'll get into that next week. But so he begins uh, his gospel sermon by saying they're not drunk. Here's the biblical justification for it. And then he goes, this is all happening because of the person Jesus Christ who did mighty works in front of you, yet you killed him anyways. This is gospel preaching. Do you, have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about the guy who healed the lame, where the blind could see? He even rose people from the dead. Have you heard about that guy? Yeah, we've heard about him. You killed him. And their response is to repent, fall on their knees, and follow Jesus. The revelation that the person that many of them had likely met. There had been uh, stories about Jesus circulating. His popularity has grown. You don't feed 5,000 people and then just disappear into nothingness. No, Jesus had become well known. And his crucifixion had become well known. There was a huge crowd outside of Jerusalem. And they were given a choice. Do you want Jesus or Barabbas? And everybody goes, give us Barabbas. He's the fun guy. Right? They chose the party guy. And then they say, well, what do you want us to do with Jesus? Crucify him, the crowd shouted. And now, just a short time later, those same people that had watched the king they had been waiting for die on the cross they're now seeing their own scripture fulfilled in front of their face. 
And the question they're asking is, why is all this happening? And Peter's response is, guys, you know what's happening. How many more signs do you need? That person, Jesus, that came and did mighty works that you've all heard about? God, with his foreknowledge predestined for him to die, so you have the foreknowledge and predestination of God, but then you also have the moral accountability of your own actions because he says, you killed him. It's that God laid this all out to work perfectly, but you did it too. You killed Christ. Can you imagine being in that audience and the light coming on? Realizing that, that like all those things that you had heard were actually true. But you had been such a cynic and such a skeptic and so full of pride and ego that you go, nobody feeds 5,000. That's stupid. Nobody does that. It's just one of those other like wizard people trying to be, oh, look at us. We're a prophet. Man, everybody's trying to be like Moses. Everybody wants to be one of the big guys. Here it is. We just got another one of those people saying they're the Christ. I'm so tired of this. I mean, you've been waiting for thousands of years, so the idea that it would actually happen had to just be like, wasn't even, didn't even show up on your radar. But because of that skepticism, that cynical heart, you actually participated in the murder of your own Messiah. When that light came on, when the realization happened, over 3,000 people are going to fall on their knees and become believers. And the same spirit that they had been envious of in Moses or Noah or anybody from the Old Testament was going to live within them. They wouldn't have to visit the temple of God anymore. They had become the temple of God. It's incredible. And we can still preach the same sermon. Because if his salvation is personal, then your sin was personal as well. The Bible is very clear that he died for your sin. And it's not used in a generic kind of broad way. It's in a very personal way. Like the actual things that you have done wrong killed Jesus. Collectively, we all together did it because of our sinfulness. And he died for humanity uh, those who would become believers. But if his salvation is personal, right, where he saves you as an individual, then he died for you as an individual as well. Isn't that true? That on his mind, the mind of God, as he suffers the pangs and arrows of death, is you. And what you had done. We all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But the truth could be also said, for God so loved Caleb that he gave his only son. Because my sin alone was enough that he would have to come and die. You could put your name there. And we read about revival and things happening in the U.S. right now. And praise God. Revival comes from realizing that the man that we killed was God, and he still loves us anyways. And we repent of our sinfulness. We repent of our ignorance. We repent of our eternal skepticism that God is actually going to work. Because someday Jesus Christ is going to show back up, 
And there are going to be a bunch of people who were too busy with their religion to ever get to know God. And our desire and our heart isn't for an organized religious system that just makes us feel like good people. Our, our desire is to be in communion with our Creator. Next week, we'll see thousands of people repent and give their life to Christ the very first time the gospel is preached. It's the same message that we preach today, and we should still respond in the same way. The, the message hasn't changed over 2,000 years. This Messiah, this Christ, this Jesus, died for you because he loves you. Not because of anything that you have done, he loved you first in hopes that he could win back the hearts and minds of his children that have been led astray by the lies of the enemy. Every Sunday, we want to give you a chance to respond to what Christ has done. You band is going to come play. We'll have a time of response. There's an altar here. If you have sin in your life and you say, God, I, I need to have a time of repentance because I realize that my sin is one is just added to the number of those sins that killed my Lord and Savior. Maybe you just have some work that you need to do in your own heart and mind with God. Maybe you don't consider yourself a believer today. That could change because you don't want to miss what God is going to do in the future. We take communion after we have our time of response. The bread signifies his flesh being broken, so you don't have to be broken anymore. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. I'm going to pray, and then let's uh, have a time of response together.